My eighth grade English teacher was Mrs. Talbert. She had a pretty low bar, like a lot of middle school English teachers. She didn't have the highest hopes for us, but she did hope that if she planted seeds, that maybe some years later, we would become lovers of literature, lovers of good stories. We read some of the better known, I remember Edgar Allan Poe, as well as lesser known. And while there were always things she wanted to point out to us within the stories, she was always asking us, and what do you think of the story? All these years later, I've tried to imagine turning that around and asking Mrs. Talbert, so what do you make of Mark's gospel? What do you make of his story? And this is his ending. What do you make of that? It's a strange one, we know that. It's supposedly Easter, they go to discover an empty tomb, they're told to go and spread the news and instead it says they fled in terror and said nothing to anyone. Actually, it's worse than that. That's how the English reads. In Greek, it's more along these lines. They fled in terror, they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid for, that's a dangling preposition. Mrs. Talbert would not approve of a dangling preposition. The Gospel of Mark ends mid-sentence with a preposition. That's insane. So uncomfortable was the early church with this less than satisfactory ending, they tacked on others. If you opened that pew Bible, you may have seen it, that after verse 8, which is the end, in brackets, they put other verses, and there's a complicated footnote explaining how all of these different endings got tacked together, but that's not Mark. Mark ends in a kind of disappointing way. I mean, resurrection stories should have Jesus show up. Mark doesn't. Resurrection stories should have disciples' fears quelled. Mark doesn't. Resurrection stories should end with some kind of grand sharing of testimony. Mark doesn't. I remember a few years back, we were at the movies, and somebody with a clipboard, official-looking person, came up to us with vouchers and said, next week, midweek, we're doing a showing of a movie that's in final production, and we can give you a free voucher, but you will have to give us feedback. Well, it's a free movie. We're coming, right? So we go on Tuesday. The cinema's pretty much empty except for this one theater where we're watching this movie. I don't remember the movie, but I remember afterwards they put, passed out little putt-putt pencils and a, a sheet a feedback sheet, and there were all kinds of questions, but a lot of them. What did you think of the ending? What if, what if it went like this instead? There are a lot of ways to get into a story, but writers work very hard at how to end it. I'm guessing Mark missed that class on how to end a gospel. You, you know, told the professor, I'm sorry I'm going to miss, I'll get the notes from someone else. Uh-huh, sure, I've heard that one before. In truth, in truth, Mark wrote the very first gospel. He invented the genre. 
Matthew, Luke, John, they came along. And at least in the case of Matthew and Luke, they had a copy of Mark. And they were impressed, impressed enough that sometimes they copied large chunks word for word, cut and paste. You have that? They had that. They take Mark and they go, oh, I like this, I like that, I'll use this. But when they get to the end, they just shake their heads in disbelief. Matthew, he has a copy of Mark. He reads this and he goes, no, 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 no. You end the gospel with the great commission, not the great omission. They said nothing to anyone. What kind of way is that to end the gospel? So Matthew constructs this mountaintop experience with the disciples. Jesus sends them out into all the world. That is triumphal. Luke says, hey, I can do better than that. Luke has a copy of Mark, and he says, no, no, no. He tells a story about the resurrected Jesus showing up at this table, how their eyes are open, the breaking of bread, how Jesus says to the church, I'm going to open your minds to understand the scriptures, and then Jesus is lifted into heaven, and then Luke says, I'm not done, and he writes a sequel, the book of Acts. I mean, that's pretty good. Now, Mark, and John, John has two endings to his gospel. He stops, he starts again, and in both cases he says something kind of like this. Now look, I've left a lot of stuff out. If I put everything in that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books. That's probably hyperbole, but resurrection stories need exaggeration. But not Mark. Not Mark. Several years ago, I took with me on vacation a copy of Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Maybe you read it somewhere along in the journey, or you were supposed to, but this was a new edition. It's this great classic story of love during World War I, and you get to the end, and you're kind of taken aback, and you close the book, and you're trying to take it in, but in this case, they had added an appendix with the 40 alternative endings that Hemingway played with. 40 different ways he thought about ending it. And, and the editors kind of tried to categorize it, you know, like pessimistic, optimistic, spiritual, something like that. I think for most people, they would put Mark's ending in the pessimistic category. But I don't think so. I think this is part of Mark's artistry and part of Mark's theology. We, we've said this so many times throughout the spring that for Mark, there is this thing about ambiguity. He, he leaves things unsettled. You're not even really sure what's happening. I mean, is the, is the person inside the tomb who says, hey, he's not here, is that an angel or a man? We don't know, it doesn't say. And when he says, well, go and tell the disciples, he'll see you in Galilee, do they go? Do the, do the guys ever show up? Does Jesus show up? In Mark's gospel, we have no clue. But I think it's also part of Mark's theology that it has to be less than triumphal because so is life. Back in the 60s, a scholar by the name of Frank Kermode wrote a couple of books inspired by the ending of Mark's gospel. And, and in essence, what he said was, all of us crave completion. We want it to come full circle. 
We love to go to the movies and to pick up a novel knowing that we will go on a roller coaster ride, ups and downs, twists and turns. That's called plot, and we love that. But in the end, we want denouement. We want closure. We want a little bow. Wrap it up. Yep, yep, bring it back. And Cremody says that's not what you get in Mark. And because you don't get completion, you have to keep working at it. Mark cannot bring himself to write down the words, and they lived happily ever after. He just can't do it. He could never work for Disney. (laughs) All good writers know that it's just not that neat and clean. One of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, in his memoir, Telling Secrets, kind of has this image about this. He, he describes the famous Tower of London and one piece of it called the White Tower, which is the oldest, built by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And inside the White Tower is the Chapel of St. John. And it is a gorgeous space. It is the kind of place that brings contentment and peace and hope. But directly below it, is the darkest place in all of the tower, a dungeon, a cell, not even four feet high, not even four feet in length. You could not stand, you could not stretch, no ventilation to speak of, no light. And Beekner says, it's these two spaces next to each other that symbolize our lives. There is both peace and joy, And there is despair, and they are held together, even at Easter. In that memoir, he tells the story of one of the dark times in their family's life. They had three daughters, one of whom battled anorexia pretty much her whole life, pretty much losing the battle off and on. And Beekner was so depressed over it because he couldn't fix it couldn't do anything about it. One day he went for a drive by himself in the country and he pulled off on the roadside just terribly depressed. And then a car came along. A car with a custom license plate and one word on it that he most needed at that moment. It said trust. And he took it as a sign from God, trust. Now it turned out to belong to a trust officer from a bank. And when the man later heard the story, he presented the license plate as a gift, and Beekner still has it on his bookshelf. But the word trust on that plate is rusted and bent, because so are we. Even after Easter, there is fear. And even after Easter, there is anorexia. And while we crave completion, that is not what we get from Mark. We get promise. We get promise. And we hope and we trust in the resurrection. I wonder all these years later what Mrs. Talbert would think of Mark's story. I tried to figure out how, how do you end a sermon 
on a gospel that refuses to end. And then I remembered a great story about David Rhodes. He's a gospel storyteller, and you've heard me perhaps mention before how in the early church, there were these people that performed the Gospels before they were written down, and, and there are still people who do it. They, they go to churches, and they different organizations. They don't dress up in costume. They don't have a cast. They don't have any notes. They just simply stand there, and they recite from memory the Gospel of Mark, and it is this powerful experience. And the first time David Rhodes ever did it, as he got near the end, his mind started racing. He knew and, and so he got to the last line, and he said, And the women, they fled in terror and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And the words just hung there, and he could feel it. it, was, it there was this discomfort in the air, and the congregation could feel it, and he could feel it. And after a few seconds, he said, Amen. And everybody clapped, and he sat down, and he knew he had failed because he had not been faithful to the gospel of Mark. And so ever since then, nowadays, when he does it, he gets to the end and he says, and the women, they fled in terror and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then he sits down and leaves it with them. 